For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, good evening. Um, we're recording this as I had to do last uh, semester, I guess we call it, uh, in my house. I hope this will be the last one next time. Hopefully we'll be back in Schultz and Shomri, I suppose, in the uh, winter of session if everything goes well. Um, I originally had a plan to do this summer lecture series, which I do every year in the three weeks, uh, in a show, but uh, timing is everything as the Polish comedians tell us, and uh, the Schultz, at the time I made this, the announcement, the ad, uh, the Schultz was still masked, and I don't think anybody was to sit list for an hour or more having to wear masks, so unfortunately that was the rules of Baltimore City, and consequently we decided we'll do this um, remotely, for better or worse. Uh, as it happens, next week I believe, or something like that, the masks are coming off, but since we're already committed to this format, Samir Sashem will see you through. And as I say, if I have my way and you have your way, then the uh, talks in the future will be live. Um, I prefer that, and I hope you do, but some of you might be lazy and just want to cuddle up wherever and, uh, and uh, let me put you to sleep, you know, literally. Uh, that's good too. So without any further ado, I picked a hard topic, or rather, Arielga uh, suborned me into doing this uh, topic. Uh, every year, as you know, during the three weeks, I try to come up with uh, something in Jewish history having to do with tragedy or whatever. Uh, the Maimonidean controversies are kind of tragic in a certain way. And um, anyway, they obviously fascinate some people. And so I committed myself to doing this. So we're looking now, therefore, at the three weeks lecture series. In the year 2021, uh, the title of this series is Fundamental Disagreement, the Maimonidean Controversies of the Middle Ages. There will be six, um, I, I'm expecting six talks, not enough to cover it, but that's what we'll do. And uh, they'll be issued out on my YouTube channel on Monday nights and Thursday nights, as you see in the Where When I Went. So just get to Where When I Went, and you look at the, um, the schedule, and you know when everything is. I want to thank Jesse Westing for taking his time and coming here and running the show. Uh, technically, I can thank him for all this, and Howard Elbaum, of course, for putting together the PowerPoint. Tonight is the first of the six lectures. It's titled Revelation, Rationality and Rationalism. And rationality and rationalism are not identical. In the Middle Ages, maybe I should have titled it Rational Revelation, Rationality and Rationalism up to the Middle Ages. That's by way of background. You know me, if you don't, you can't, when you do anything in history, it doesn't make any sense unless you start at the beginning. So that's what I'm going to do. Tonight's uh, talk is being sponsored by Michael and Jeffrey and their families in memory of the victims of the terroristic and indiscriminate Hamas rockets attack, rocket attacks in the recent Gaza war. I don't think I need to say any more than that. So thank you. And without further ado, here we go into Revelation, Rationality, and Rationalism up to the Middle Ages. And I'll begin my remarks now. The earliest document of Judaism, the controlling document, I'm talking about normative Judaism. Remember, 
There were Jews once by long ago who believed in sacrificing children. I'm not talking, I'm talking about regular normative Judaism. The controlling document is, of course, the Torah, starting with the Chumash. Now, what kind of a book, what kind of a text is the Chumash? Is it a law book? I mean, is it a code of laws? No, not really. You know what a law code looks like. The Rambam is a law code. The Chumash is not written that way. Is it a textbook of some kind? With a table of contents and an index? Is it a sustained logical argument? Moving from point to point, chapter by chapter? No, it is not. Is it a science book? Does it explain the physics of creation? The astronomy of the planets? The evolution of human society and its institutions? No, not really. Does it explain metaphysics? How something came out of nothing? How something came out of nothing? Uh, does it talk about other zones of reality? No. Okay, so you'll tell me it's mainly stories about God. Or, better yet, God and man. It's not a science book. Okay, okay. So then is it a theology book? Does it define God? Does it explain the mechanics of the divine? Where God comes from? Does it tell how God communicates with man? Does it tell how God runs the world? Assuming that he runs the world? Most of all, does it explain why God runs the world in such a strange way? Obviously, I'm talking about the question of all questions, which is Sadi Varolo, Rasha Vitovo. Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? Why do the world stink so much? Right? Uh, there are no good answers to that. <clears throat> no good answers to that. I know the answers. There are no good answers to that. Because God, being all powerful, according to the Jews, could make a better world. And don't tell me you got to earn it all the way. He can make it feel good even if you didn't earn it. And don't tell me, well, it all gets sorted out in the afterlife. There is no afterlife in the Chumash. At least when you read the Chumash, it doesn't say so. Everything there happens in this life. I mean, just look at the second paragraph of the Shema that we recite multiple times every day. If you're a good boy and you listen to God and all the rest of it, I'll give you rain, I'll give you crops, and so on and so forth. Don't say anything about Olam Habar or any of that kind of business. You know, we all know that. There certainly is no mention of resurrection, that will be part of the Maimonidean controversies, as we shall see. So the Chumash does not fit these Western patterns of literature, of literature and thought. Certainly, a plain reading of the Chumash does not yield such thoughts. Finally, the Chumash and the rest of the Bible says things about God which make God seem, you know, kind of human, just a lot more powerful. Isn't that right? I'm referring here to the anthropomorphisms, where God is described in all kind of human fashion. So much so that the commentators have to go and drive, you know, do somersaults and try to explain what's going on. Okay? Need I point out, uh, you have gross anthropomorphisms, I repeat, gross anthropomorphisms, right at the beginning of Bracious. We all know the story about how great God creates the world, and then creates man, and mankind, and then what happens? But you know what it says, God saw that man was real bad, and that all man thinks about his bad all the time, and translate that, very depressed. Sad deep in his heart.
that league be present. Huh? Right? And he says, um, where does it go? Uh, I'm gonna wipe out mankind because I made a mistake. I regret having created them. Except for no. For no, this is very meaning of partial bracious. Huh? The omniscient, the all powerful, the all seeing, the all knowing says I made a mistake. I regret having done this. Let me uh, wipe them and start all over again. These are gross anthropomorphisms. And the classic commentators really have to work hard to try to explain why is the Chumash written in this way? Why is it not written in a philosophical fashion or something like that, which would acknowledge that God is beyond, beyond, and beyond powerful, all the rest of it? But it's not written that way. That's my point. Okay? Plus, there are a lot of other things. Why is God always jealous in the Bible of other gods? Why should we be jealous? Yeah? Are you jealous of, of idols? I know people bow down from all the rest of it. Why are you jealous? And why does he need to punish the gods of Egypt? He said, when I take you out of Egypt, not only am I going to take you out and punish the Egyptians, I, I get the idea you want to punish the Egyptians because you want to bring justice and revenge on the perpetrators. I'm going to punish the gods of Egypt? Like, what's that all about? Right? And what's up with these miracles? With the supernatural? How come we never see miracles? I mean, biblical miracles. How come they happened long ago, but they don't happen now? The Bible does not explain why this is. But inquiring minds want to know. Now, once you get past the Chumash, when you get to the period of the Nach, Nevim, and Kisivim, do things change? Well, there's no shortage of anthropomorphisms, of anthropomorphic prophetic visions. And in the Nevim, is there? What's the famous vision of Michio? Where he says, I see God on a throne trying to figure out how can we nail that bum Achov, and he consults with the angels till finally a spirit says, I have a good idea, let's lure Achov into battle and get killed fighting the Arameans. And God says, that's a good idea. So is there a council in heaven? Really? Where God sits on a throne and he talks to advisors and he takes like, you know, a run of the room like running a meeting? Uh, right? And this is Nevua from Michayahu. Or the famous vision, the next one, of Isaiah, that we all know, that we see in the Kedusha, where he says, I saw Hashem sitting on the throne, and it's Rafa Mimalo, and they're, they're wearing six wings, and they're saying, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Is that literally true? Is God sitting on a throne somewhere? And is he surrounded by angels who are saying these things? I mean, is, really? Right? And, you know, the vision of Ezekiel, Yecheskel, where the angels are saying, Bruch, Kod Hashem, and Kamo. Uh, these are prophecies. They're nevuas. A plain reading of it, which is given to the public, all we have is a plain reading, sounds like there's some place where God lives and has a chair and uh, hangs out with angels. Is this so? Now, in addition, although God is certainly long-suffering, his patience, I'm sorry, his impatience with Israelite idolatry and misbehavior eventually runs out. And he said, I had it up to here. That's the language in the book of Malachim. That's the language in the book of Dereonim. I had it up to here, and I'm throwing you out of Israel. So is that shocked that God has a certain amount of patience? And then beyond that, he doesn't know. Does he have these human attributes? Okay? And in the Nevi'im stories, when you read the Nevi'im, God is one of the actors. He's not the transcendental and the ineffable. Right? 
you know, the ones Machalish with two Bukhoyim, my celebration and all this stuff running around all the time. He's one of the players. He's the most powerful player, but he's one of the players. Is this accurate? As far as I can recollect, only King Solomon, Shlomo Melch, at the inauguration of the Beis Hamidrash, the first temple, raises philosophical questions for a minute. Right? Shlomo says, Bona Benisi Beis Vuloch Machal Now remember, he just poured a trillion bucks into making the building of all buildings, which he covered with gold and this and that and the other. Okay, fine. That's fine. And then he said like this, Bona Benisi Beis Vuloch, I built you a Lord of Splendid Palace. But then, a few lines later, he said like this, wait a minute. Is Hashem really going to... Did we do the right thing? Making a house for God? Right? Even the heavens don't contain you, which is a good word. God does not live in heaven. Agreed? He created heaven. <laughs> he doesn't live there, right? And then Shlomo raises in his inauguration speech, which is fascinating, the philosophical question of what did we just spend all the money on? Okay? That's the only time I can think of offhand when in the Nevi'ah someone raises, as I just said before, philosophical, theological questions. Uh, now, uh, it's also true that we can perhaps expect this of Shlomo, who is described, as we know, as unusually wise, way out of the normal. So Shlomo's not your typical. said he had Chochmah, unlimited, and all that because of his famous dream where he picked the jackpot by asking for wisdom. Uh, so maybe that's why, unlike the other biblical characters, he's raising actual questions of philosophy of the divine. In the book of Kohelis, ascribed to Shlomo, Shlomo will engage in extensive philosophical speculation, unique among biblical figures, and at variance with them and their styles. Above all, the pessimism about life, Right? Everything is, is useless, is vanity. Really? Is that true? The whole life is, is garnished? And then he says later on, What good is there for people, all the hard work they do under the sun? The only thing that lasts forever is the earth. People come and go. And even asked over there, uh, let's go to the next one, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What's the difference between a man and an animal? They both live and they both die. And who knows what really happens to you at the end of life? That's what it says in, in Kohelis. Right? Uh, what's the language over there? Who knows? Uh, who knows if the animal spirit rises upward and the, uh, the human spirit goes up and the animal spirit goes down? Maybe they both go down. Who knows? Maybe when you die, the lights go out. Like the atheists say. Who knows? This is very funny language in the Torah, and you know, by the way, it's not um, surprising, okay, that, um, let me put it this way, this is so different from the rest of the Old Testament that it has certainly led the non-from scholars to say that Kohelis is not from Shlomo from a, a later era. It's so at variance with your typical Jewish biblical ways of talking and thinking. Indeed, the Chazal themselves, as we see in the next one, were... Uh, quite uncomfortable with, with the book of Kohelis. Uh, they didn't like this kind of approach. And said, so, It was a big movement not to include Kohelis in the canon of the Bible, as I think many people know. Now, don't worry. When it is included in the Tanakh, 
the Chazal will radically reinterpret the book. So if you read the Medrash Rabba on Kohelis, you're not going to recognize by the time they're finished with it. He says, you know, there's no point of anything under the sun. They'll say, well, there's no point in Gashmias under the sun. But in Torah, there certainly is something under the sun. It's okay with me, but that's not what it says. And so they're always flipping it. It's very interesting to study the Medrash Rabba, I think, on Kohelis, and how they take it, and these uh, philosophically pessimistic statements are completely reworked. The same non-from skepticism applies to the other book of the Tanakh, which is philosophically speculative, and I'm referring, of course, to the book of Job, of Eos, right? Where you really have a theodicy question. I think everybody's more or less familiar with the story of Job, where it says he was a righteous man, Sumerah, but God and Satan have a bet. And they say, let's torture the guy and see if he will uh, curse God. Which, you know, God and Satan, really? Is that, that how it works? Does Hashem hang, up, hang around upstairs with angels? You know, like at a bar, and with the Satan, no less? Okay? Uh, I remember many years ago, I saw the Malbim, I believe it says, my father told me to tell you the truth, uh, the Malbim suggests there's such an opinion out there that uh, in the Gemara in Babasar that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote the book of uh, Eov, in which case it's a novel, Eov L'Hoiv L'Nivra. Okay? Eov L'Hoiv L'Nivra. There's such an opinion like that. And Maimonides will like that opinion. Um, and if it's if Eov, if Eov never existed, then who wrote it and why? And they say Moshe wrote it. Why would Moshe write it? Well, he wanted to raise the philosophical problems that his generation would have because he's trying to tell... I like this word. It, uh, he's trying to tell the brand new generation of Jews who's leaving Egypt, drop all your Avodah ideas, your world of Egyptian polytheism, in which there's an explanation for every phenomenon that this God caused this and that God caused that, and instead replace it with a radically different paradigm that there's a single God. So the people who, who runs and does everything. Whereupon, the people are going to say this, well, if there's one God, then I have complaints. Because why did he make me a slave, and why did he kill my children, and why does life stink? And knows why they're evil. And to try to um, deal with this question of questions, which bothered Moshe himself, because it says that on Mount Sinai, after, after he persuaded God not to wipe the Jews out as a result of the Golden Calf episode, he said, show me your way, show me your face, which means, Tzadik Varola Varosha Tova, I don't understand myself. Why did the righteous uh, prosper and the wicked... Uh, the righteous suffering that we could prosper. So Moshe is bothered by all this thing. God said, I can't tell you. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you. You can only see my back. Was we all know the story. So Eve would be an elaboration on that thing. <laughs> However, which I like is a good word. Whatever you say, the book of Job is clearly a philosophical book, which of course makes it very different than the rest of the uh, books of the Bible. Uh, right? I mean, the, the question at least is artfully rehearsed. Uh, on the other hand, what makes it, well, if, it, if, if it's a marshal, if it didn't really happen, then it's no problem with God and Satan. But if it happened, there's a problem with that. But okay, these are exceptions. The rest of the Tanakh is not like this. Now let me make something clear. This does not mean that the ancient Hebrews were theological primitives, literalists who took the anthropomorphic descriptions of God literally, disbelievers in an immortal soul and who knows what else. Obviously smart people are smart people. But we have no evidence of discussion of these issues in the texts of the Tanakh, Alento, Halos, and Eov. Undoubtedly, we're going back thousands and thousands of years, 
Some Jews were intellectually primitive and unsophisticated. Others were not. The Nevi'im themselves, the prophets, criticized the theological confusions that led the Jewish people to sin, such as the notion, you find it in Yirmiyahu, that uh, nothing can happen to Jerusalem as long as the temple is inside it. That was one of the reasons they didn't repent, according to the prophets. And uh, that's silly, right? Uh, well, that's what they thought. Or, um, Jeremiah talks about the Queen of Heaven, that when the base of mission is destroyed, people say something along the lines, it's because we didn't pay enough attention to worshiping the goddess called uh, Malchashamayim, the Queen of Heaven. Those, they completely misunderstood the import of the Churban Beis HaMikdash. So such things happen. Chronologically, the biblical narrative extends to the Persian Empire, which you see over here. Uh, the, 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 the farthest long you get in the Tanakh is Nehemiah, who is in the time of the Persian Empire. Okay? It's a little bit after uh, the, the Purim story. So, the Jews no longer have their own country, but they're scattered all over the Persian Empire. At least that's what it says. We all know from the famous description of Esther, The Jews are all over the place. Um, so we're now in a diaspora period, a dispersion period. Not too long afterwards, Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire, and the Jews encountered the Greeks, which were a radically different culture. So there you have, you can see it's roughly the same as the Persian Empire. Uh, and, um, you know, Alexander died shortly after he conquered and his successes fought it out. But this is what we call the Hellenistic Empires. So the Jews are in a, in, in a Hellenistic world. And the Jews, as I said before, lived everywhere. They lived all throughout that map. Okay? They lived all throughout that map. But, um, and they were Hellenized culturally. The Jews picked up the Greek language in one form or another. Even the Frum. Um, the question is, were they Hellenized religiously? It's a big question. Now, they were certainly not Hellenized to the point of becoming pagans. On the contrary, in the Hellenistic era, Judaism was a vigorous missionary religion, uh, which was on the offensive, with a certain degree of success, against the Hellenistic religions. Okay? And we've talked about it many times before. There were many people who were not Jewish, who converted to Judaism or half converted to Judaism and joined Jewish communities in one form or another because they found the Jewish religious idea in their mind superior to the Hellenistic ones in which they've been raised for a whole bunch of reasons. I'm not going to go into that now. So it wasn't that Judaism felt you know, under attack by the powerful ideas of Greek paganism. Okay? Nevertheless, while Judaism certainly penetrated Hellenism, to a certain extent, that's the Christian religion, frankly. Hellenism also penetrated Judaism, to a certain extent. In addition, in this period, Judaism became much more widely known than ever because the Septuagint, the translation of the Bible into Greek, exposed the Torah to universal view. Correct? There was a time, as far as we know, in the by its recent period, let's say, for example, the Jews were just a group that lived in Yehuda and Israel, in the area of Israel, Palestine, and other groups had their religion, the Jews had their religion, and, and that's it. On the other hand, in the Second Temple period, in that map that I showed you before, we all know 
that not too long after the Greeks took over in the 280s BCE in Alexandria in Egypt, the Torah was translated to Greek. That means the stories of the Bible are now exposed to everybody. Uh, I've spoken on other occasions how, for example, this began an anti-Semitic movement in Egypt because the Egyptians look really dumb in the Chumash, okay? Uh, now, my point is, uh, tonight, I'm interested in not how we impacted their culture, but the other way around. How did Hellenistic culture, Greek thinking, how did it impact the Jews in this Bayashini period? Now, the Greek culture in those times, and I'm speaking very simplistically here, was consisting, in my opinion, of three elements, A, B, and C. First of all, the Greek religion. Second of all, the ethical philosophies. And third of all, what I would call scientific philosophies for my purpose tonight. Now, the religions of the Greeks, that's a joke for the Jews. Nobody was interested in converting to believe in Zeus and Hercules and Achilles and Hector and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that had no uh, attraction for the Jews. What about the ethical philosophies? These would be like your Stoics, your Epicureans. It's like Kohelis a little bit. You know, what's the right way to live life? Okay? That's a philosophical question of an ethical variety. What's the right way to live life? What's the right choices to make in life? They're interesting, at least in some elements, but ultimately, they're ethics. Ethics presumes there's no God. Do you understand that? Ethics presumes there's no God. I have two people to save. I'm a doctor. I can save one or the other. I don't believe in God. I'm trying to eat a meat in my mo. Is there a, a, a way for me to make a choice purely on basis of reason? That's what ethics is. So, for example, someone might say, well, here's an old person, here's a young person, so save the young person, go a little longer. You know, that's a possible way of looking at it. There are other factors. Ethics is, if I can use the term, atheistical. Uh, and these ethics systems are not scientific. So the Jews, they weren't true. They're just interesting, okay? I want to be clear about this. Um, as we'll see, the elements of ethical Greek philosophies were of interest to Chazal to some degree. I would say mainly Stoicism, because the Stoics, of course, reject, I'll use Yeshiva language, the, the Stoics say you should be above Gashmias, okay? That's a Jewish idea. I'm above Gashmias. Well, not totally. The Hasidim might disagree, but you know, you get the general idea. Right? You read Marcus Aurelius and his uh, meditations, a lot of it sounds Jewish. A lot doesn't, but a lot of it sounds Jewish. Okay? Uh, I'll give you an example. Don't make yourself impervious to Lashon Hara. What do you care what other people think about it? That's a very, very Jewish kind of a, a teaching. Okay? Um, but they're not scientific. They're not backed by, you know, uh, what we would call scientific evidence. So, they're interesting, but they're not what we call true. But what about the third one, science? As was in, understood in the time of the Greeks. Aristotle, Plato, things like that. Science is true. At least it claimed to be. Now, by this time, the Greeks had developed the philosophical methodologies of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, Ptolemy, Dehan, and speculative though they were, they were considered scientifically true. In other words, reflective of real reality. Now, don't tell me from our perspective today. I'm talking about the way people thought at that time. You know, Aristotle more or less invented modern science. Now, all the theories eventually were wrong, but people didn't see it that way. And obviously today, science has completely transformed itself 
and uses different uh, you know, ways of, of arriving at scientific truth. But at that time, well, let me put it this way, but it speaks with the scientific voice. So if somebody says, I got a, a cure for something, a reputable doctor or a scientist or whatever, like a COVID something, you know, there's empirical verification and the whole process with the hypothesis and the testable and all that stuff. And uh, you know, that's the language of, that gives you the, the authoritative voice of science. Let's put it this way. We all took the shots. <laughs> now, I'm not talking to the anti-vaxxers, but the old people took the shots because they believed in the authority of the science, you see? Uh, now, one can always say, and it's not incorrect, that uh, 100 years later, the science has proved wrong. They didn't see it that way at that time. Because for hundreds of years, for many centuries, as we'll see, down to the time of the Rambam and afterwards, the science of the Greek time was considered pretty correct. Pretty correct. Now, um, in that case, uh, thinking Jews are going to be interested in that. Of course, by modern standards, it's wrong, ridiculous. I'm talking about 2,200 years ago. The old Greek science was not based on modern physical evidence of things that could be empirically verified. Rather, it was grounded in observation without instruments of precise measurement and logical argument. Okay? That's the point. So, let me put it this way. You do expose yourself to counter-argument and, you know, that's a certain way of testing something. It is. It's better than simply saying, be macabre what I say and shut up. There, There, there is, you know, value in exposing what you're saying to counter-argument, but as, as I said before, you're not using, uh, you know, precision or anything like that. Hence, this science at that time, see, they use the word philosophy, but they mean what you and I call science. Uh, this science covered all things and all sorts of things that modern science has nothing to do with. I'm talking about God, afterlife, spiritual worlds, etc. In other words, metaphysics. Today, metaphysics is not a science. Uh, but that time, it certainly was. And the same degree of truth based on logical argument was extended to the non-physical world as to the physical world, as we shall see. Especially, by the way, theology. I mean, in other words, define God. I mean, Aristotle and these guys certainly do that, and they did a lot of valuable work in undertaking to define God because they got rid of all the, a lot of the dumb ideas of the Avodazar and the mythology. There's no question about that, okay? Uh, but again, define these terms. Define heaven and define hell. I mean, is it a place? When you die, do you fly somewhere? <laughs> like in a rocket ship? You see what I'm saying? That kind of approach. As an informal missionary religion, Jews all over the region, all over the Greek world, used to discuss religion with Gentiles, including Gentiles with good Greek education and philosophy, both ethical as well as scientific. Life is so constituted that uh, if you have friends, or people you have a story next to, or people you encounter, sooner or later religion comes up. Right? Even me, I have a relatively, what shall I say, sheltered life. Believe it or not, Sometimes I get emails and things like from people with different religions, stuff comes up, okay? As a result, um, in my opinion, look, everything I'm saying tonight is my opinion. This is my take on things. As a result, Jewish sages will discuss and even refine traditional Jewish religious concepts in new ways and in new language. Here is an outstanding example that I think we're all familiar with. From a rabbi, right after Shimon Sadik, according to the Perky Elvis, uh, early, relatively early in the, uh, in the Second Temple period, 
the name of this leading rabbi of the generation is Antigonus, <laughs> which is, tells you a lot about the Greek penetration in, into Jewish life. Imagine Rav Shach would be Antigonus Shach or something like that, you know? <laughs> Couldn't imagine it, right? And he was the head rabbi. And what does he say? We're all familiar with this. He says, "Alto you covered him, I'm shamshet's rabbi, Manasseh Kabbal Pras. Alto you covered him, I'm shamshet. So Rabbi Shalom and I will call Manasseh Kabbal Pras, which means, everybody knows this, don't be like a servant who, who works for the master only for, for the reward. Be, what, be like a servant who definitely works for the master, but he doesn't have in mind the, the reward. Okay? So we call this Shema in Hebrew. Right? Now how come this isn't in the Chumash? How come this isn't in the Tanakh? Why is it by a guy named Antigonus at the beginning of the Greek period, meaning when the Jews encounter the Greeks in their history, he's supposed to be the successor of Shimon Atzadik. According to the Jewish tradition, Shimon Atzadik was at the time of Alexander the Great. So to be somebody early in the Greek period, you see the fact that now he's encountered, or Jews, or Talmudim has encountered Hellenistic thinking, Greek thinking, and they say, what kind of religion do you Jews have? Uh, it's very unworthy. All you're doing is racking up brownie points in heaven. Every time you do a mystery, you're just thinking, oh, what's my schar? That's a disgusting. Well, that's an interesting philosophical critique. And he admits it. And, uh, and he says, the ideal is lishma. We allow shalom lishma, but the ideal is lishma, because that's what you're reading over here. Okay? And by the way, again, according to the rabbinic tradition, uh, the Sadukim by Susan came out of this because some of his students understood him to be speaking as an Epicurean. Don't think about the reward because there is none. You see, that's how they understood it. And, uh, which is why they say, and so forth. Maimonides has a famous essay where he discusses all this, an introduction to Perichelech, by the way. But I'm simply trying to point out that when the Jews, historically, chronologically, encounter the Greeks, you start to see some examples of famous rabbis. I'm going to say it again. I'm taking this was bigger than Moshe Feinstein. Antigonus was bigger than the villain going, correct? He was the head of Sanhedrin and all that. Time by Shani. Want to be clear about this? One of the sages, before the sages. So, and he's already talking what is clearly a philosophical response to the critique of Judaism, which goes down to Kant in, in modern times. Another example, these are things that just popped up at me. Rabbi Akiva is waxing philosophical, or maybe not. Because what does Rabbi Kiva say in the, um, he lived later, uh, in the Perkevs, Hakol Tzofo Yvarashus Nesuna. What does that mean? That's the famous problem of Yedim uh, Bechira, a predestination and free choice. You know, what kind of choice do you have in doing a Mitzvah and a Bear? It's already predestined, what's going to, the future is already there, so we all know what the, what the choice is going to be. And are those two things contradictory? In other words, let's put it this way, are we deterministic? Rabbi Kiva is making a, an adamant stand. Hakol Sofoy, God knows what's going to happen. But that is not determinism. You still have Rishush, you still have the um, ability to choose the Bechira uh, between good and bad. Therefore, you're judged. Because otherwise, there's no basis for reward and punishment. And then all those theories about the Torah being something you have to practice in order to gain points goes out the window. And so you say, no, no, Hakol Sofoy, Rishush, Nesuna. And I don't explain why. So, it's a retort to a certain determinism, but it's not an explanation, philosophically, of why you believe as you do. And by the way, the Rambam, a thousand years later, will do the exact same thing. He'll say, listen, you just got to get used to it. 
Hakal Sofik, which is uh, say the same thing, that there is, uh, you know, God knows beforehand, uh, but uh, you still have uh, free will because God's knowledge is not like ours. Uh, but my point, once again, is that you have here not your typical Mishnah, which talks about a halacha, a ritual practice, uh, you know, Shabbos, Kashas, Tars, Mishpacha, Tumah, Tyra, Kachim, the usual stuff out there. But rather, once in a while, you raise a, uh, as a theological and a philosophical question. In the Second Temple period, once again, it's no question that Rabbi Kiev's not saying it's time to develop around for nothing. He must be responding to questions that people are asking this time. And these would be philosophical Greek-type questions. Uh, there's a, another example. Again, I just put down a few to show you what I mean. These are ones we all know. That's so what about the copper snake? Right? Or when Moshe raises his hands to fight Amalek. You know, was it magic that when Moses raised his hands, they defeated Amalek? And when he lowered his hands, they didn't? No. Rather, it means that when he raised his hands, he made everybody look up and pray to heaven. You know this Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah. The same thing. Was the copper snake really, you know, therapeutic? Now, wait a minute. God did say make a copper snake. Just was in the lightning the other day. I say, says those words. Right? When they had to play, go make a snake, and when people look at it, they'll live. Sounds, again, I told you before, Bible's not written in philosophical terms. Sounds magical, hocus pocus. And the Mishnah says, It wasn't a snake. But when you looked up, you prayed to heaven, it was your tefillahs to God that did it. That is a philosophical Mishnah. Get it? A philosophical Mishnah. It's taking a story and reinterpreting it in philosophical terms, and that's in the Mishnah. It's not in the original Okay? Um, and sometimes you find philosophical questions raised when they encounter Gentiles. Uh, here's a famous uh, Mishnah in uh, Bodhisattva, I guess. Where, what does it say? Shows Hacham Baromi. It's a king of Baromi. That after the temple was destroyed, there were a number of delegations of the sages that went to Rome for various political reasons. Uh, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, after the destruction of the temple. And while in Rome, they encountered, occasionally, it would seem, either Jewish or non-Jewish intellectuals, and they asked them, and this would be a question of a Roman intellectual, make complete sense, as he said over here, If God really doesn't like a Buddhist, why doesn't he destroy all the idols? And they give their answer. They said, what's he going to destroy? The sun, the moon, and the stars? You know, the guy in worshipable kind of nature. And these things are necessary for the running of the world, you know, and so on and so forth. Again, go look at a Buddhist if you want to see the whole conversation as you have it in front of you. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. It's a philosophical conversation. It's a theological conversation. It's not a question what time is Mincha, right? It's not a question is the air of kosher. It's not a question of math and science. You understand, you know, how big is the gris? It's a question, rather, as I said before, a basic fundamental question that should be asked in the Chumash, one would think, if one was looking at the Chumash as a philosophical document. Now, we're getting ahead of ourselves, perhaps. Um, already in the time of the Apocrypha, long before the rabbinic writings, uh, time of the Apocrypha, these would be books written in the Second Temple period, even though officially Jewish religion doesn't accept them. Long before the time of the Mishnah, we see some Jews, I'm talking about texts now, Dealing with philosophical and theological challenges. Specifically, why do the Jews, if we're the chosen people, why do we suffer so much? 
and so terribly. I refer to the authorial monologue which precedes the story of Khan and the Seven Sons. As you see in front of you, this is a passage from Second Book of Maccabees. And what does he say over here? Look at verse 12. After telling all the horrors that had a it killed mothers and babies and burned people in caves and stuff, all the from. In 12, it says, I beg you not to. Now, it's in Greek, okay? It's in Greek. It's apocrypha. I beg you not to become discouraged as you read about the terrible things that happened. Consider this the Lord's way of punishing his people, not of destroying them. In fact, it's a sign of kindness to punish a person immediately for his sins rather than to wait a long time. The Lord does not treat us as he does other nations, he waits patiently until they're deeply involved in sin before he punishes them. So basically, it's a philosophical, it's a theological argument. The reason we suffer so much is to uh, not let the bank account get too deep. You know, not your debt, your your your, your uh, bank debt rise too high. Every once in a while, God chastises you, and that burns out the sins of that generation. And uh, you know, the nature of our sins never gets so bad. It does say that in the Chumash, where it says, "I'm taking to Israel kilo shalem avun hu amaria that God was waiting for the Emori, the Canaanites for their sins to reach a certain point beyond which they would declare, you know, moral bankruptcy. So he doesn't let us do so. Now you can like that shot or not like that shot. That's not my point. I'm saying here's a text written long before the Mishnah. Uh, the second book of Maccabees would be something like 150, 130 BCE. Uh, all right? And uh, granted, it's not part of the canon. It's not part of the Bible or anything like that. But it's a Jewish book. It's obviously written by what I would call Hellenized Jew, from God, but he, he's writing to a Jewish audience that's thinking in these kind of terms, and he's undertaking to explain a basic philosophical question, which perhaps in other generations it wouldn't even arisen. Okay? Uh, now, look what I've done, though, tonight. I've cherry-picked a small number of texts here and there that demonstrate that the Jews, their sages, or at least some of them, were not unfamiliar with basic Greek philosophical thinking, and sometimes they addressed it. But are these statements typical? Yeah. For every philosophical thought in post-biblical literature, I can pr pr produce many that are the opposite. Just one will suffice. Um, what does the Shekhinah say in Sanhedrin when someone is murdered? Uh, uh, when a person suffers, God says, my head hurts, my arm hurts. That's a beautiful idea. It's a poetic idea. That when a person is suffering, God is also suffering in some degree. It's not literal. Now, I'm talking philosophically here, see? I'm talking philosophically. Maybe a Jew long ago, as we shall see next week, so like this, if it says God's arm hurts, then God's not. Anyway, it doesn't. Like that, you see? Uh, so we can reproduce many of those. And then when you get past the Mishnah, you get to the Gemara and the Medrash, maybe you got anthropomorphism on steroids. The Agatha is replete, everybody knows this, with witches and witchcraft, demons, good angels and bad angels, mystical creatures, etc. And especially a god who has a human personality. Sometimes it's poetically finessed, like in the famous story of Nitzchuni Bonai, we all know that story. Rev. Leslie said, I'm right, if I'm right, was it the wall should fall down, the tree should shake, and all this. And, you know, and they did, so in other words, he was right. And nevertheless, Rabbi Shua said, Lo he. God doesn't get to decide by making nature change 
the revelations, right? We pass them like the majority. And what is God saying in heaven? It's Huni Bunai, they busted me, right? My, my children have, have, have beaten me in argument. Really? I, it's a nice word. Really? Really? See, they have no hesitation whatsoever in the Agatha to use what we would call today extreme anthropomorphisms. We're just used to this, okay? But other times not. Sometimes the language attributed to the divine is extremely bizarre. If you're from Jew, you're used to it. Aside from anachronisms and other problems, I mean, you get a ton of chronological issues. I don't even go to this. When you get into these Agathas, just this past week, I mentioned that we had the Haftorah by Yiftach, and the chapter after the Haftorah talks about Yiftach and his daughter, and we all know he ended up killing his daughter, and in the, and I happen to say this in Shul, and in the Medrash Rabbah, I'm sorry, Medrash Tankuma, in Bechukosai, the daughter says, don't kill me, look at others. Did they do that? Did Avram uh, kill Yitzhak in the end? No. Did Yaakov take one of his ten children, twelve children, and kill them? No. Did Hannah, when she said, I dedicate my son to the Mishkan, did Hannah kill Samuel? No, she took him and handed him over alive to the Mishkan. Wait a minute, Hannah's after Yiftach. <laughs> right? Agree? So, you know, it's anachronism. You, you, you have that a fair amount of times in there. In other words, in the reconstruction of Bible stories, as well as historical events, we have issues. Now, to tell you the truth, these were not problematic in the unhistorical Middle Ages. People weren't bothered by chronology problems. But they would pop up in the historicist 19th century, where people also cared about such historical matters. And remember that Agatha is replete with stories about the supernatural and magical power of the Chachamim. No question about that. The supernatural and, super, um, and, and superhuman powers of the sages. Basically, the Agatha took all this to a new level. And yet at the same time, there are many passages in the Agatha which are rational and even philosophical. So basically we have two categories which I would call A and B. A would be the kind of Agathas that you find in the Babli, the Yerushalmi, the Medish Rabbah, and so forth, uh, which are rational, philosophical, and scientifically sound. There are many. And B, not. You have magical, supernatural, non-rational, and above all, anthropomorphic. So, from the science philosophy perspective, I shouldn't do this, uh, let's call one good and one bad. Now, um, not surprisingly, the Rambam is always going to cite A. He will bring many times a statement of Chazal to support his you know, thoughts and always be from category A, never from category B. Just off the top of my head, when the Rambam says the Moshe Mashiach will be just like nowadays, there won't be a time of supernatural events, he quotes Shmuel, who says, Ain't being uh, the only, or Moshe Mashiach, the Shibbin Malchus, that the only difference is going to be that the Jews will be free and you'll know, have a state of Israel and be um, uh, from and at peace. But other than that, it'll be the same world that we have now. Now, there's a ton of statements elsewhere in the Chazal that you could point to, which will describe the Mashiach time as supernatural and magical. But that's not what he chose. So Rambam, not surprisingly, you know, always going to make sure to pick A and not B. Uh, the promiscuous intermingling of A statements along B, alongside B statements, which you find everywhere in Chazal, is the clearest 
indication of the difference between rabbinic culture and thinking on the one hand and Greco-Roman culture and thinking on the other. There's no attempt to integrate them into a, you know, a logical and philosophical coherent whole, not in the rabbinic literature. That's why I always, in all my speeches, I always refer to, refer to Judaism as nomian. Remember, I've said this till, uh, you know, uh, you're already tired of it. What are the four pillars of traditional Judaism that emerged by consensus? Fundamentalism, nomianism. What does nomianism mean? That the emphasis is on the practical halakha the rituals that we just talked about, the laws, kashras, shabbos, um, you know, marriage and divorce, yordaya, kosher mishpat, and so on and so forth. This is the great emphasis, which is true, of the uh, rabbinic culture. And if one community found another community was lighting matches on Shabbos, it would be all hell would break loose. But if somebody has an opinion, like I said before, Hakal Safi Rashus Nasuno, one guy says, I'm a determinist. You know, uh, however you say it, I know, uh, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. I don't have any Bechira in that. All right, so that's what the guy thinks, you know, if you disagree with him, or anything along those lines. So, Judaism emerged as a Numian religion, not a philosophical one. Okay? Matter of fact, this is a basic characteristic, that's why I always put it up there, of traditional Judaism, because there really was clearly a disinterest in theological precision. And therefore, there was a loose uh, nature of Jewish doctrine. We can't even speak about Jewish doctrine, except in the broadest uh, parameters. Now, to be honest, we do not know how the Talmudic literature, which became the supreme canonical literature of the Jewish people after late antiquity, we do not know how it actually came to be composed and published. We don't, we don't know. Okay? All we know is what the train looked like by the time it ended. So, was the Gemara put together in the late 400s, in the 500s, the 600s, you know, something like that. Get it? Not we have any precision. Be that as it may, we all do know what the train looked like after it came out of the tunnel. And then we do know that the Talmud, broadly defined, became the governing text of Judaism. Viewed broadly, the Talmud sought to unite the Jews, who remember are bereft of a state, a church, and geographical contiguity. They sought to unite the Jews um, as best they could. As I've mentioned many times, to be Jewish in the Middle Ages meant there's an existential tension between centrifugal forces and centripetal forces. There's a lot of stuff pulling you away from other Jews and uh, losing your Jewish identity as part of a Jewish people. And that happened from time to time. Because the Jews had no state and no uh, church, as I said before. They had no Sanhedrin or anything like that. And they're just scattered all over the place. What's amazing and remarkable is, Afal Pekin, the Jews pretty much everywhere, not everywhere, but most places, held together and considered themselves a single people. And uh, consider themselves, you know, a Yemenite Jew will feel he's a brother of a Polish Jew, even though they'll never see him. The Yemenite Jew will never feel that he's a brother of the Arab who lives next door to him. So that sense of personal identity, uh, that's a tribute to the power of the centripetal forces, which is, uh, which is the result of the Talmud and the rabbinical literature, which became an international Jewish culture everywhere, little by little. To do this, whatever the actual thoughts of the composer of the Talmud were, the Talmud sought to uniformitize Jewish religious practice, okay, but not in a coded way. The Gemara is not written as a law code. Again, that you get the Rambam. Instead of a law code, which simply has an attitude, uh, just follow it and shut up. What does the law code say? 
Here's the laws. You don't like it too bad. This is what you got to do. And you just lay it out, hopefully in a clear way. You know, it's apathetic in that way. Uh, instead of a law of code, the Talmud, as we all know, shares the reasoning. So that the law may be implied intelligently in different ways in different situations. Uh, you know, Cheska is about in Shalashana. So, you know, you, know, you want to hold on to a piece of ground you have to for three years. That's because in those days, you know, that's how long people kept up this stuff. Nowadays in America, we have a different system with uh, long-term records keeping and things like that. It's all online. So the din will have to change according to that. So don't tell me it says this in a certain book or in the Gemara. The Gemara gives an example of the reasoning. You understand? But you're supposed to take the reason. That's the whole shot of, of learning Gemara with the, with the Mepharshim. You understand the reason behind it and you apply it to the new situation. So that um, made the more flexible and able to apply in, in all kinds of different places. On the, on the one hand, this did make the Talmud a very difficult text because since it's not written in the form of a law code, it's very hard to understand. And the language was not easy, and there's no punctuation, and so on and so forth. Uh, and again, to tie the sugis together, very difficult. I'm talking about before Art Scroll existed, before Rashi existed. On the other hand, it did provide the essential flexibility without which Judaism could not have survived. Let's be clear about this. Uh, this will be one of the conundrums of Maimonides when he tries to make a law code. Had the law code worked the way he said he wanted, it would have killed Judaism. Now, flexibility implies variation. Not every community would define the halacha in the same way. That's what you call your machlokas v'shonim. So in many areas of Jewish law, in one place they did it one way, in the other place they did it another way, because they interpreted the Gemara to, to mean that. This was nothing new. It had been the norm in the Talmudic era, as is evident on every page of the Talmud. They're always arguing and debate, I should say disputing points of law and practice, as we all know. Indeed, this non-uniformity was the ideal. If you look at the Gerash Shriagam, which is the from history, written by in the 10th century by one of the Gonim, or Shibas and Bogo, he describes the Torah Shalapet, the oral law, as being oral and not allowed to be committed to textual form, not because of some taboo, but precisely in order to provide the maximum flexibility to the Torah teacher, provided that person is thoroughly familiar with the material and therefore competent to Paskin. Okay, there should be no precedent whatsoever, but rather, it's, you know, you learn, like I said before, the Svaras, and you have the Bikiyas and the Yedias, and, and your Elia Novi, or David Amalch, or whoever, Cheskia, and you apply him to the situation that you see. And that's the way God wanted, according to this. That's the party line you see over here. This is the Gers of Shiragon. This is official from um, chronology, from, from the definition. So you see this flexibility thing is not some modern thing I'm saying over here. It's an intrinsic part of the very notion of the concept of the oral law. Now, so it's not a matter of the orality. It's a matter of, you don't want a text to share the flexibility, uh, which, it, um, which it will do. You and I live in an era, I mean, look here. <laughs> we have a million books. But that's the way it developed. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Now, in the Middle Ages, such possibilities of variation were more vital than ever in providing the ability to maintain a basic consensus for a people who wanted to maintain their identity as a separate people in the face of harsh facts of their situation as a hated and helpless minority, physically separated from one another and atomized into tiny and scattered groups. Remember, there was no Jewish church, there was no Sanhedrin, no official body everybody felt they have to listen to. 
So it all depended on consensus. The maintenance of such consensus was the supreme political accomplishment of the Jews in the medieval diaspora. Like I said before, couldn't make anybody do anything. They had no state, they had no power. Couldn't force anybody. We can only establish a rough consensus, and we did. That's why we're around today. As to the doctrinal side, in other words, the Hashkafa side, the Agatha side, there was no attempt even to create a consensus on what these stories mean. First of all, there never had been, okay? As I told you before, Judaism has no tradition of trying to find precision on non-halachic matters. With a few exceptions. I mean, here's, here's a funny exception. There was a machlok, for a long time. Philosophical question, is it better for man to be created or not to be created? That's a nice Greek question. Right? Let's put it this way. You out there, has your life been worth it or, or not? Would it have been better never to have been born? And there's a debate between Beisham and Beisham. But that's quite rare. Okay, It's not typical at all. Uh, and by the way, they voted on it, right? What do they say at the end? They say, Nim Nibagamru, they took a vote. Where is it? And uh, they say, you know, better uh, not to have been born, but once you're born, you got to work at it. You foster from So, uh, okay. Okay. Now, um, in other words, Judaism never developed a, a Greek theological precision character, it was not native to Judaism. Even at Harsinai, it says, Kol Hashem, and, it was, and, and, and the, the Ten Commandments were heard differently by different people. Okay? Hazokin lefi kochal, hanoshim lefi kochan, hayonkel lefi kochan, and so on and so forth. Uh, they heard the voice of God differently. What's that, what does that mean? I mean, let's put it this way. Hashem was in charge. So he was the one <laughs> creating this phenomenon where the sole time in history where he spoke to wake people was in ways that were heard differently by different people. So what does that mean? Okay? This is the reason why Orthodox historians like uh, the Deirdre Shonim and the others, as you see in the next slide, um, were skeptical about the Pharisee-Sadducee uh, conflict. Josephus said it was based on theology. And uh, Halevi and Vigamilla and others said, nah, it wasn't based on theology. Jews never got into a uh, Fights like the Pharisees said, it's no matters of theology. It was politics. You know, saying it was a covering with a, a fig leaf of theological difference. It was really political. And second of all, Judaism didn't have a church. Once the Sanhedrin dissolved in the uh, 300s, let's say. Um, so let's put it this way um, if there's no Sanhedrin, there's no church, there's no official body that you say has the power and the authority to issue anything new, number one, Doctrine could not be debated in any central form because there was no central form. And second of all, doctrine could not be uh, voted on passed on. There could be no nimmu vigumra like we just saw before happen on that rare case with Beisham Beisil. And so all the questions that are in my mind, the controversy there was nobody to issue an authoritative opinion. Because there was no authority, therefore there could be no doctrine because doctrine is a function of authority. More, I'm talking about institutional authority, obviously. Moreover, since Judaism developed Talmudically, the sole authority could be the Talmud, the broad Talmud. Well, guess what? In the Middle Ages, very few Jews could A, read the Talmud, I mean, at all, B, understand it, C, master it. I mean, mastery of the halakhic material. 
That's a very small number. So how can anyone master the I got it material, <laughs> right? It's a big challenge to say, even today, it's a big challenge to say, well, I know this sugi on this particular subject has five places in Shas, and here's how we put them all together and collate them, and so on and such and such, like the cast of Nebuchadnezzar or something like that. Uh, who's going to do that with a Gato, right? I mean, let's put it this way. How does one collate and synthesize the agatic material? How can one? And how could one credibly integrate such variated agatitas, which seem to be so radically at variance? You understand what I'm saying? You'd have to take all the... It's like when it comes to halacha, you're supposed to take all the places in shas. It depends how good you are. But if you're good, find all the places in shas, which have to do with a particular subject, and you better put them together and make them work. How can you do the way they got it to? You can't. Does dialectics work in such matters? You know, when it comes to uh, ritual and practice, halacha, in the Gemara, of course, as we all know, they use a dialectical methodology, and that's what they did later in the Middle Ages. So you have did, you have a kasha, and you come with a terrace. You know, you have a thesis, and an antithesis, and eventually a synthesis. And you try to argue for the, uh, what shall I say, the, the, the validity of your synthesis. That's called svar. How do you do that with a god? Is it even appropriate? You know, one place that God does this, the other place God does that. So which is it? You would come with something in the middle. Now, one more thing, because the hour's late. Jews in the Middle Ages did not live in a vacuum. Probably they lived in a world which I always call characterized by two teams. So you see the map in front of you, that's the Muslims. That's the caliphate that existed once upon a time. All the Muslims lived in a single country for a while, the 600s, 700s, 800s, 900s, uh, called the Arab Empire, the caliphate. And all the Jews were there. No, let's go back. The white area above it in Europe, that's called Christendom. So the Jews who lived, for example, in, in Italy or France or Germany, a place like that, they lived in Team B. That's the way, if you're Jewish, that's how it was. So for what we call the Middle Ages was characterized by the world being dominated by two religions. And wherever the Jews were, they were the minority within that particular religion. Okay? Um, that's what they were. Now, Christianity emerged out of Greek culture. Remember, the Greek, the New Testament is in Greek. And from the beginning, Christianity was theologically obsessed to get exactly doctrine downright. With Jesus like this, like that, with Mary, this, that, and the other, down to what was their hairs. I'm serious about that, right, okay? And when the, uh, here we go to the next one. When the Roman Emperor was taken over by the Christians in the time of the Emperor Constantine, first thing he did, he was a soldier, and he said like this, there are too many opinions out there. You guys get together, hammer this out, and give me a pro, like, like a boss would say in a meeting, right? He said, look guys, hammer your heads together and come out with something that we can all get behind. But you're talking about theology over here. You're talking about God. And they did it. So here's the famous council when I see it, for example, in where Constantine forced all these uh, different Christian bishops and thinkers to disagree with each other radically, try to come together and, ba and bang their heads together and come up with an agreed-upon agenda. Okay? And so you see they dealt with the Arian question regarding the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Not only is incarnate form as Jesus knows in physical form, but also in his nature before the, the creation of the world, or the divine purpose. In other words, what's the story with the Trinity? Now come on, guys, and give me, you know, something that we can work with. That's how you approach a question of theology. How do you know it's true? And also the date of celebration of uh, uh, Easter, because they didn't want it to come out at the same time as Passover. That's theological obsession, which is the reverse of Judaism. There's a soldier's approach. And by the way, it led to a lot of wars because the minority in the council in Nicaea did not go along with the decision of the minority. Majority. It led to what's called the wars of religion. 
Now, these Christian things did not really affect the Jews. The Jews looked on the Christian stuff as bizarre. I mean, talking the question over here, you know, is the hair on Jesus' head is the divine or something like that. For a Jew, that's weird, okay? It certainly was not worthy of respect. But Islam was a different story. The Jews that found some of the Islamic Empire found some exposed to a different type of thinking. And that, my friends, will take us into our next lecture. And with that, I bid you good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.